Belgioso Cheese is a family-owned and operated company specializing in artisan Italian cheesemaking. Using only natural ingredients and fresh, local Wisconsin milk, master cheesemakers handcraft a full line of exceptional cheeses, guided by a commitment to quality and a respect for tradition. Ask your distributor about Belgioso's award-winning fresh mozzarella, burrata, ricotta, mascarpone, American grana, and parmesan. At Belgioso, every cheese is a specialty. Well, welcome, guys. We've had a big week over here. Sam, do you want to talk a little bit about what's been going on? Because it's major. I would happily do that. Thank you, Holly. Uh, we have teased it for uh, two months or so now. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, but um, we are finally excited to announce our brand icon winner. Uh, you might remember that we launched our brand icon last year. White Castle, which was celebrating 101 years in business, was our first ever brand icon. And and what we meant by that was we wanted to acknowledge a major restaurant company that was both uh, recognizing its legacy, many generations in business, while also pushing the envelope on uh, innovation. So really living at that intersection of legacy and innovation, because we all know that there's a lot of big chains out there that are legacy chains, and they can't seem to keep up with the times. They can't seem to modernize. But there are some very successful chains that are, um, they are still very youthful. They're still very innovative. So launched it last year, recognizing White Castle. This year, Which, by the way, we won a Neil Award for. We won a Neil Award for that. Um, uh, so big thank you to Holly, who participated. We were in White Castle's headquarters. We did a big multimedia profile with some videos. Um, by the way, go check that out, nrn.com slash white-castle. Uh, and uh, you can go check that out. But importantly, we are here for the 2023 Brand Icon winner, which let me put down my little fidget thing here and give a drum roll. Taco Bell, ladies and gentlemen, Taco Bell, the 2023 brand icon. Uh, Look, that's kind of a no-brainer, right? Taco Bell is 61 years old, and yet, is there any brand more in tune with the youth of today? It just blows my mind um, that this brand that opened first opened when JFK was president uh, is now, you know, has Doja Cat in their promotions and LeBron James and. Um, we wanted to really get behind the scenes and see what's behind that. So I had the pleasure of going to their headquarters in Irvine, California, and um, speaking with several executives, including incoming CEO Sean Tresvant, and um, just getting a sense of what, what's the secret here? How does Taco Bell continue to thrive, continue to be successful? Yes, with sales. They did about $13 billion in sales in 2022 across 7,000 restaurants in the U.S., um, and, and it, they are growing, uh, but like just to be, uh, such a embedded participant of the cultural zeitgeist, you know, like Taco Bell means something to everyone, whether that's good or bad. It's mostly good though. Like I think everybody has sort of this fun, fresh impression of Taco Bell that most restaurant chains do not enjoy. And I just really, um, again, wanted to understand what the key to that was, uh, and that's what uh, we went set out to do. So um, spent two days at their headquarters. Um, today, we are excited to announce them as brand icon and um, put out into the world the result of my reporting. You can go to nrn.com uh, right at the top of the um, website if you go there. 
uh, well, you it might not be there by the time you go there. But nrn.com slash taco dash bell will get you right there. Uh, you can read uh, the feature that I wrote uh, uh, based on my reporting. You can also catch three videos that we filmed. Um, hear from the executives. Learn from their leadership team. What makes Taco Bell um, such an iconic brand? Uh, and the only teaser I will give you, the, the sort of big theme of it, uh, is... They have this saying that they want to be restlessly creative. And I really love that. As a creative myself, uh, I think we all would love to be restlessly creative, but that can be exhausting. Uh, but they legitimately in their marketing, in their messaging, in their operations, they continue to drive innovation by always trying to be better, always trying to improve upon what they have. Um, and from the C-suite down to the front line, uh, they motivate their team to look at something from new angles, um, to take some big swings. And um, and that's really kind of the key. But you can unpack it more, obviously, with the story, with the videos that we did, um, and, and see what is so key um, to Taco Bell being so successful. My, my thank yous, by the way, out to Taco Bell and their leaders, Sean Trezvant and several other executives, for taking a lot of time um, and opening their doors to us. Um, with several security swipes, I might add, but they did open the doors. Um, but it was uh, very um, humbling for them to welcome us into their office and give us kind of that behind the scenes tour. So uh, you can get it to nrn.com slash taco dash bell. And there are videos of you eating, if I'm not uh, mistaken. Yeah, I mean, if you didn't get enough of me eating White Castle sliders last year, you can now watch me eating a lot of Taco Bell, the most Taco Bell I've had in probably a decade plus all in one sitting. Um, but it was awesome. And um, Liz Matthews, uh, who is their executive chef, essentially her, her title's Chief Food Innovation Officer. Uh, she and the Innovation Kitchen there, I mean, that, that's it's like hollowed ground. Um, and I think people need to understand, you know, 20 years, Liz Matthews has been with Taco Bell and she has a great team with her too. Uh, but if you think about the last 20 years of menu innovations at Taco Bell, I mean, they've had hit after hit after hit and it is really unique dishes. Like, you know, there are some things that are just come out of left field, but they just are, are succeeding kind of one thing after another. And um, to be able to go to their innovation kitchen to see where this all came from, to talk to Liz, who's been leading the team uh, behind that. Uh, Missy Shapak, who's their head of sustainability and uh, nutrition, she also participated to get to sit down and have some food and kind of talk about what was behind these dishes. Um, that included, by the way, their brand spanking new uh, grilled cheese uh, steak fries, uh, which I believe just came out Tuesday, uh, yesterday for when we're recording this, but Tuesday of this week, I got to eat those. They were great, delicious. Got to try the gelato. Um Anyway, you can watch me eating all of those things and commenting on them. I mean, you just think about the crunch wrap. That's like that's their signature item now. It's unique. They created it from scratch. That's I mean, it's also my favorite item. So. That's my go to for sure. And yeah. the breakfast yeah. crunch wrap, by the way, is like it's delicious. It's so good. It's just it's so, so good. good. They're very good at making delicious food, um, but at a value, right? Like Taco Bell's whole stick is we are a value and an indulgence. Um, but it's a really interesting to sit down and understand, like, yes, we all get it, the wink and the nod about Taco Bell. We all know what you, people typically say about Taco Bell and the late nights, whatever. But 
they're in on it too. That's what makes Taco Bell so great. They know exactly who they are and they never pretend to be anything they're not. But if you start to unpack it, it's amazing. I mean, the sustainability initiatives that I don't think anybody really knows about how they're saving billions of condiment packets from uh, landfills every year. You know, like um, they, they're 30% or something like that of their menu is vegan. I mean, it, it, it's incredible that there are still ways in which Taco Bell Yes, haha, funny Taco Bell. They're responsible. They're a grown-up brand as much as they are a youthful brand. So anyway, you can really unpack a lot of that again in this story and uh, uh, highly recommend you go check that out. And thank you again to Team Taco Bell, which uh, was very kind enough to open the doors to us. Team Taco Bell. Team Taco Bell. I know you're Team Taco (laughs) Bell, Holly. I am Team Taco Bell till the day I die. Yep. Oh my, now I want some Taco Bell. That's so mean, Sam. I did almost get Taco Bell for lunch yesterday as a way to honor brand icon. Um, I I didn't have time for it, uh, but I might do that today. I just, I'm craving it now. Although I had a month's worth while I was there, uh, but that was over a month ago that I went there. So now that's not too much. There's never too much. That's what I was going to say. It was well over a month ago, Sam. Yeah, (laughs) it's time to get back into my Taco Bell cravings. There's never too much Taco Bell. Never. Don't even say that. There's no limit. Okay. I will not say that again. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, how was your weekend, guys? What'd you do? Let's talk about that before we get into the wah, wah. It's Wednesday. Yeah, it's Wednesday. Am I? <laughs> it's Wednesday. I went to a show last night. Who needs weekends? I can do things during the week. Um, and actually thought about <laughs> one of our stories, not to jump the gun here, but got a uh, drink at a Broadway show last night and tipped the bartender on a little tablet thing. And thought about all the people who are so mad about that as I did it. <laughs> Tipped a little extra just for them. And did you feel all high and mighty doing it? <laughs> Actually, the bartender was really grateful. Like, she was like, oh, my gosh, thank you so much. That means a lot. And I was like, all right. I mean, yeah, I, like, it's an easy way to make someone's day. And then I had a great night, like, at the show. And, you know, I'm not going to think about that 250 or whatever it was. I think after bartenders are totally different than, like, when you go to like a coffee shop and you get a drip coffee, like that's a totally different experience. And I feel like that's kind of what people are debating now. We'll get into that story later. But last night I had five guys for the first time. <laughs> I, I do appreciate that extra serving has become the platform by which we are discovering Holly's blind spots in the fast food world. And what you are trying for the first time that the rest of the world is like, are you serious? Um, <laughs> what did you think, Holly? So I was out late at night. No, really? I'm, I'm shocked. <laughs> Although Tuesday, Holly, come on. Tuesday. Jeez. And so I walked by five guys and I was like, I need French fries. And so I got French fries at five guys. There was nobody else in there. They gave me three times the amount of fries. The whole bag was sopping with oil and I ate them in the car and it was amazing. That's actually the amount of fries you get at Five Guys. <laughs> yeah, like they, they, we had the, there was a little cup, and then it was just all over the bag. That's like a Five Guys yeah, bag move. Was that's that's a Five do. Guys serving of mm-hmm. fries. Yeah. Oh my god, it was so many fries. The cup is yeah. pointless. Yeah. It's kind of. It's kind of. And did you get it in a brown bag? Did you yeah, get a brown bag? Two yeah. brown bags. It's like it's kind of like their thing that the brown bag it's greasy on the bottom because all of the food's overflowing. That's like kind of their shtick, but they're really darn good fries i like they're really good fries fries. i mean i did have to add some salt to them but they were really good fair enough and the burger the burger did you get a burger didn't need a burger i just got fries i just got that big bag of fries doesn't count then i'm not allowing it 
<laughs> I don't know if I can eat that burger. I think five guys too much for burgers me. and fries. You got to get the burger. Yeah. Oh, I still want Taco Bell. But we're eating spicy chicken, not to ruin another story for us today, but we are doing a menu tracker video, which I'm sure everybody in this podcast loves, um, but it's all about spicy chicken because that is the new thing. And I could tell you a lot of chains introduced spicy chicken in the past month. So it's, we're doing a video focused on that, not to jump ahead. Which we, we should, we we'll should just about. like, we should talk, start talking about the news. We, clearly we want to talk about <laughs> We picked some good things to talk about today, I think. So Yeah, because they're just in they're in the news. They're they're very current. So um let's get to the bad news first. Uh Burger King has several franchisees who have filed for bankruptcy, three since January. Um, I mean, what does this mean for Burger King? We were talking about it earlier on the call. Burger King saw over seven percent same store sales increase uh last quarter, but they have this reclaim the flame four hundred million dollar investment into their franchisees. I mean, so what does it mean that they're that they're, you know, going bankrupt? Is that because of Reclaim the Flame? Is it not doing enough? I mean, what do you guys think? I think that the the Reclaim the Flame investment and the bankruptcies are like a chicken and the egg situation. Reclaim the Flame launched a year or two ago now at this point because the franchises needed <clears throat> something. You know, like needed some help, needed a boost uh, from the parent company, which Burger King stepped up and organized and launched this whole big campaign, which is in its second phase now, I think. Um, But because so many franchises were already struggling, which makes sense, this was like 2021 probably, uh, it feels inevitable that some of them, rather than really thriving with the investment, would continue on the path that they were on and end up having to shut their doors or declare bankruptcy as another means of, you know, getting financing or whatever the case may be. So I think those are two different things. I think that there are two different ways that Burger King is trying to get everyone organized and on the same page and moving forward. And I think that last quarter's financials really show that it's working. I mean, they did have about 7% system-wide same-store sales increase. Their traffic was flat, which I think everyone in the industry would agree is a huge success for last quarter. Across the industry, traffic was not great. Um, So I really think that this is just, this feels kind of like the final like cleansing um, before Burger King is about to start doing something really good. Uh, I was going to say something else and I lost it. Shall I pick up from there? Do you have a thread you can pick up from that? Feel free to (laughs) jump back in if you think of it. Yeah. I mean, it kind of reminds me of, um, you know, a lot of the layoffs that are happening right now. I mean, it's, it's ugly out there right now. Um, There's earlier this year, there were some in the restaurant industry in particular, there are some more high profile layoffs, for example, McDonald's and like 10,000 employees or something like that. Um, but it's been ongoing all year. You know, we hear it not just in the restaurant industry, but I think all of us here probably have uh, been affected by it on a personal level. I, I've had friends lose jobs. And in general, right now, there's just a lot of cutting and um, going back to what we've talked about all year, this efficiency, companies are having to make some very difficult decisions. And I think that's sort of comparable to what's happening at Burger King, which is, in order to really move forward into 
you know, what you think the company can and should be, sometimes that starts with some dirty work. Um, now, bankruptcy is a little bit of a different ballgame because that's a like legitimately, you know, this is not a you're a great employee, but we just don't we want to save some money. This is a legitimately these stores are not performing. Um, but I do think, again, what Burger King corporate from a sort of broader strategy is up to right now beyond bankruptcies, just with their Reclaim the Flame and some of these other initiatives is they are trying to recognize how do we, you know, cut bait to some degree? How do we clean up what's going on, make some tough decisions, uh, invest? And, and again, that always looks bad before it can be good. So, uh, yes, I agree with Leanne that I think that, um, you know, we'll see, we, we won't be able to judge what they're doing for another year or two to see how did, how did Reclaim the Flame go? How did, um, you know, store closures and some of these things that they've done affect the business broadly? Uh, we won't know. But, but what they're doing is not so different from what a lot of companies are doing. Again, not only making difficult decisions, but they're investing in operational efficiencies. They're investing in marketing. These are some of the key components of Reclaim the Flame um, that will take a while to roll out. They will take investments, resources, um, and, you know, we, we won't know truly what, what the impact will be for, for a while. But if I could also just loop back to the Five Guys example, um, and, and even Taco Bell, make this all one nice, neat little package. I think that Burger King has a, a, a problem, which is that it occupies the most saturated space in the country. Burger King's problem is they are third uh, in the burger wars, you know, to McDonald's and Wendy's. And uh, it's hard to distinguish, I think, some burger brands find it harder to distinguish themselves than, for example, Taco Bell. Taco Bell is an industry of one, and that's no knock on Taco John's, Del Taco, and other Mexican QSRs. It's really just to say that you have Taco Bell and you have everybody else. And Taco Bell's relationship to customers is so distinct and unique. And again, everybody knows exactly what they're getting out of Taco Bell. And unless you live in where, you know, the, the, primarily West Coast, where Del Taco is located, you know, you don't have a lot of Mexican QSR options. You have fast casual QSR, or excuse me, uh, uh, Chipotle, Qdoba, you know, you have those options, but I don't know about you guys, but I put those in different boxes, right? I'm not saying to myself, should I do Chipotle or should I do Taco Bell? It's usually, should I do Chipotle or Torchies or Moe's? And then for another experience, I'm saying, should I go get Taco Bell or not? Um, and, and where this relates, I'll just bring it back here to burgers. Um, you know, if I'm hungry for a burger, I'm like, okay, whew, what have I got here? Burger King, McDonald's, Wendy's. I live in Columbus, so team Wendy's. But like, you, there are so many options. It typically is what's the closest to me right now. Um, burger King has to distinguish itself among its competitors. And I think reclaim the flame is one of the ways they're trying to do that. And this is another 56 year old company. They've been through this before you go through cycles of this, but in 2023, what is unique about burger King that gets people to choose burger King over McDonald's and Wendy's and, you know, gun to my head right now. I, mm, I don't know. I don't know what, like, I couldn't tell you. Um, if if I if I blindfolded myself and ate all three of those burgers, I could say, oh yeah, that's Burger King. They've got a distinct taste. Um, but what makes me crave it? They have to figure that out in order to rise above the rest of the burger competition. And so it seems like this is kind of their moves to figure out how to do that. Well, do you think their portfolio got bloated the same way that Subway's got bloated? I mean, do you think that those have any correlation? Yeah, I think it could, right? So uh, less so than Subway. Subway's problem was it was so cheap. 
to open a subway. And it was such a small footprint that you could pop one of these into anywhere. And so they did because it was cheap and easy. Um, and so you had a subway across the street from a subway. Burger King doesn't have that problem. There's no Burger King across the street from a Burger King. Um, however, you could see that you, they probably did see Burger Kings in neighborhoods that didn't need a Burger King or Burger Kings in neighborhoods that didn't want a Burger King. Um, so there could have been some of that going on. Certainly today, you see these smaller footprint QSRs, uh, not to make this all about Taco Bell, but really top of mind for me this week. Um, it's always you know, about Taco Bell for me. It's always about Taco Bell. But you think about Taco Bell's Go Mobile uh, prototype, which was specifically designed to be a small footprint, off-premises heavy uh, prototype that you could pop into a neighborhood that you previously couldn't put a Taco Bell because there was no real estate. The, you didn't have that traditional real estate that they used to need. Now, Go Mobile gets in there. Burger King could be a similar situation where, and they've played with some prototypes. They were one of the first ones in the in the thick of the pandemic to be like, look at our fancy new prototype renderings. I don't know if they ever opened that one, but that was like, <laughs> you know, they had like pneumatic tubes and it was crazy. Um, so, so Burger King needs to probably go that direction where they can figure out how do we, how do we close down some of these big box locations in neighborhoods that are no longer craving Burger King and instead prioritize maybe a smaller footprint build that we can strategically locate near the Burger King fans. Um, that's, there's a lot of sort of guessing on my part on that, but based on what they're doing, it's, it's totally in line with um, other companies that are following that playbook. Your gut is strong or you have like absorbed some of our content by osmosis because they do have their sizzle prototype, um, which right. is basically exactly what you're describing. And they're Leanne, biggest... I read all of our content, of course. <laughs> okay. Um, Listeners Burger can't King's see her. Big... <laughs> they heard it, don't worry. Yeah. Um, Burger King's biggest franchisee, Carol's, which is doing well, um, is has just started um, rolling out the sizzle prototype. There are other um, sizzle stores, but that was part of the Reclaim the Flame investment. Um, is this? It's a smaller footprint. It's got more um, off-premises capabilities. Um, it So, yes, your gut is spot on. Yes. I was just teeing you up, Leanne. I was just teeing you up. Okay. <laughs> well, talking about new prototypes, somebody, one of my friends came up to me the other day and goes, did you know Taco Bell has a three-lane drive-thru? I was like, they got more than that. And let me tell you, it's been in the works for a long time. Were they talking about Defy? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a fancy... That was one of those renderings you saw, and you're like, yeah, sure, they'll open that. And sure yeah. enough, they opened it. And I think there's they only one. It. There's only the one in Minneapolis. Um, and I don't know that they're necessarily committed to it on a big scale, but it is something I think franchisees can do. And yeah, look, I mean, it, it, we've seen this from others. Jack in the Box was another one that recently introduced a digital prototype. Of, I forget what they called it, but it was, again, same thing. Shrink the box, find efficiencies, prioritize off-premises, mostly be for digital um, digital orders, drive-through, and delivery pickups. And they were doing way more sales than a traditional jack-in-the-box at less capital expenditure, right? This is what this is all about. And if I could, uh, with Taco Bell, um, you know, <laughs> I, I did sit down with a franchisee, Brian Cox, of CNR uh, Restaurant Group. They own, uh, I think, 70 Taco Bell, something like that. Um, and and he was, you know, he, he said it himself. He said, if Taco Bell is successful and our stores are making money, we will open more Taco Bells. That's what franchising is all about, yep. especially with these big groups like a Carol's. They want to see strong unit economics to encourage them 
to open more. And corporate's job is to figure out the right recipe from an operational standpoint to get strong union economics so that franchisees can see, so they will be motivated to expand. And these small footprint um, prototypes, Sizzle and Go Mobile and whatever the heck Jack in the Box calls theirs, these are designed to be strong unit economics because, again, lower CapEx, higher profitability, better efficiency, more money, which they like. Look at you using CapEx. You're so fancy today. Alicia, I, she's rubbing off on me. She, she's using <laughs> these terms in her stories, and I just feel like inspired. Well, at least you read her stories. Yeah, she's the only one. Otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about tipping because Joanna Fantosi wrote a really great story about tipping fatigue. You know, people have this fee fatigue that we're used to, but then I think people tacking on a tip on top of that is difficult. You know, she brought up a lot of instances um, and so did this Pew Research study brought up a lot of instances of like getting the iPad turned around to you and having to tip while the person's watching you. Um, you know, again, you brought up the bartender who's probably seeing your tip as it comes. If you, if they use one of those, um, like things where they bring it to the table and they could put your card in, those are the same kind of thing, but, um, that there's a lot of fee fatigue and tipping fatigue amongst customers who are really saying, I'm already paying enough for my food. I'm seeing these numbers come in. The check is going up. Um, and then at these places that aren't sit down restaurants, that that's not a part of it, um, that they're really seeing a hard time adding more money on through a tip. I mean, so what, like, what have your personal experiences been with this? Yeah. I mean, we've talked about this a number of times on extra serving. I think a lot of people probably know my position on this at this point. Um, um, but it's funny because uh, just last week, uh, I, one of my too many group texts, um, let's talk about group text fatigue. Am I right? Um, Cause that's one thing that mm, I have to silence way too many threads. Anyway, um, one of my, uh, uh, group texts from a bunch of college friends and, um, uh, somebody brought it up in, in that text thread, which was guys, you'd never believe how much, you know, what I just had to do. They asked me the tip, isn't this ridiculous? And, um, so we've reached a boiling point. And again, we've talked about this a number of times, but just to reiterate, um, the fees are one thing and you'll might, you might remember a couple months ago when, um, Toast tried to add the 99 cent fee for digital transactions. Everybody exploded. They walked it back. And that really brought up, that surfaced this tension of like, um, you can't just slap fees onto orders because especially when it comes to QSR fast casual, like people will notice you can't have add $1 and think nobody notices it when it's an $8 order, a $9, $10 order. Um, and already pr menu prices are up. Then we have fees, delivery fees, especially that's for the last four years. I mean, customers are re way too familiar with how much they have to pay for delivery. Um, so already we're just spending too much money on food per perception wise, right? We'll get into, you know, whether or not it is too much or not, but perception is I'm spending too much because I thought I was buying a $6 burger, but $15 later, I'm wondering how this happened. Um, so then you add on the tipping piece of this and, and something really changed in our society because tipping is uniquely American. Let's, for any of you, like I have had the luxury of traveling in Europe, you know, you discover tipping is just not a part of their culture. Um, this is an American thing. And when you grow up with it, you're kind of used to it, right? I was used to, once I started spending money on my own food, I understood 20% tip is the nice thing to do. However, I also grew up with that expectation of, you know, what that, 
what you were tipping. I service had to be rendered for tip to be provided in my mind, right? So like that was a table service restaurant. You tipped. The uh, waiter or waitress was very kind to be very friendly and added a little something extra. Therefore, you tip. Um, something shifted in the tech boom of call it 10 years ago, specifically with like Square and some of these companies that to your point, Holly, they, they, you, you had the sort of self, uh, transaction, self-powered transaction, you swiped your own card. And then there's this, you know, touch screen where you type in what you're all, or your things, or they do it for you and swivel the thing to say, here, sign this. But first you have to decide, I don't want to tip. And, and that changed everything because suddenly we were expected to tip on counter service, um, counter service transactions. And and I think we probably are due for as an industry to sit down and come to some un- agreement about what we believe is tippable because I will tell you candidly Sam Ocus's perspective on tipping. I don't believe I should tip counter service experiences and I don't believe I should tip on a pickup. Um if I put it place an order for takeout and I walk in and grab the bag and walk out in my mind there was not really service rendered. Um, if I sit down and am, you know, provided service uh, today, I, I got coffee with some friends and uh, was, you know, w- the waitress. All I got was coffee, but still great service. She gets a tip, right? So th- everything is thrown into confusion and chaos because uh, I think everybody has this report, this data suggests we suddenly feel pressure to tip everywhere because we've crossed this line into even counter service experiences deserve a tip. And, um, and a whole other facet of this, by the way, is I don't carry cash. I'm an American who is an old millennial. Of course I don't carry cash. Like that's why would I have, I never spend cash anywhere, but like that old fashioned slip a bill to the hotel valet, like I feel bad. Cause I like, I'm sorry, dude, I don't have cash. I can't do that sort of weird transaction where we hide this in the palm of my hand. Um, so everything's confusing now. Um, and I'm going to let Leanne speak in a second, I promise. But um, this is clearly something I'm passionate about. Um, if the consumer is confused, as this data suggests, if they feel like they're tipping in too many places, this is something the restaurant industry should address. Um, you do not want your customer to feel guilty. You do not want your customer to feel shame because they will blame you for that. I recently had the experience to uh, be a guest on uh, Zach Oates, uh, his, his podcast uh, at Ovation. Uh, maybe some of you are familiar. If you're not, go, go check it out. He and I spoke, uh, I believe they aired the episode a couple of days ago. Uh, we got into this as well. And he detailed an experience where he was at an ice cream shop and, and placed an order. And the person verbally across the counter said, would you like to leave a tip? And like, that's just crossing a line because then you're like, I have to say no, or I have to like appeal, uh, appear like a total jerk by saying no, or tip when I don't feel like I should have. And that's so emblematic of where we are. And and so you, you should not make your customer feel shame. You should not make them feel guilty. And so I suggest you don't make them tip if that service is not rendered that deserves tipping. And the final thing I'll say about this, I have lots of thoughts. Sorry, Leanne, I promise I'm going to get to you here. Um, I think tipping is being, don't hate me for saying this, America. It feels like, and, and I can tell you, this is how the consumer feels. The consumer feels like tipping is being used to subsidize your inability to pay higher wages. I'm just telling you, if you don't know that, that's what they think. 
that was what my group thread believed. Um, they, and they were sort of crying foul over this. I can't believe I have to pay 20 bucks for a burger and they expect me to tip. Um, there's no perfect answer here, but we need to figure this out, which is you can increase your prices and, um, you know, and you can ask for a tip if service is rendered and you can, um, you know, add fees you, but you should be doing this. Uh, you can't do all of these things and then not be paying your employees better, right? So, like, if you need to pay your employees more, um, don't pass that buck too much onto the customer because they'll know it. Or do that, increase your prices, but don't ask for a tip. You know what I mean? Like, you, you've got to. There's a there's a uh, uh, some sort of solution here that maybe we're not all figuring out yet, but we've got to because the customer thinks all right, enough of this. I don't believe I should tip. I don't believe I should be the one paying better wages for your employees. It's your job. I'm already spending too much on your food. <sighs> Sorry. It was quite the monologue. All right. I'm going to sign off now. You guys have got this. <laughs> I, have, I have strong feelings. I, I mean, look, we've talked about this a number of times and I just, and, and, but Hey, I look, I guess I should final say as a final thing, I don't believe tipping as a, th- as a, institution let's call it is in itself bad um and i do again i do believe um when you get great service you should tip well you know because um i I can't tell you how many people i just felt such joy to tip them because i'm like you made my experience so much better hospitality should be rewarded but it should not be the default (laughs) right you should the reward should not be default because we all know there's a lot of lousy service out there Okay, Leon. Are you done? <laughs> I'm done. I'll mute just to prove it. Do you have any more final things you want to tack on there? Because you got six or seven in. Actually, now that I think of it, I'm, just, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. You go. <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, I am, in fact, one of those people who thinks that we should just pay everybody a living wage and do away with tipping as an institution. Like, that's my dream. Um, however, I'm well aware that we're never going to do that unless literally everyone bands together and gets on board, which... I think we all know is also a pipe dream. Um, So in the meantime, I think that what you were saying at the beginning of that rant, like 15 minutes ago about perception is really uh, the key here. Uh, Because I can see as like, you know, if you own a coffee shop and say, you know, you're doing your best, you're paying your employees as much as you can, like whatever. I can see adding a tipping option to the tablet or utilizing that option with the mindset of like, well, it can't hurt. Like, you know, maybe 75% of people won't tip, but maybe, you know, the barista will pocket an extra, you know, 50 bucks on a busy morning shift or something. And like, what's the bad thing there? But the bad thing there, of course, is the perception. It's the person who is going to get outraged about it and text all their college buddies and presumably with, you know, the name of the coffee shop and can you believe this or that? And also you can't stop your employees from doing the awkward, like, do you want to leave me a tip thing? You know, you can say like, you know, just, I've, I've even had, um, baristas or bartenders say like, oh, like there's an option to leave a tip if you want, but don't feel like you have to. Um, you can't force your employees to say that or to like say nothing or look away to make your drink while they're on that screen. Um, So perception is really the line to walk there because you'll always have like people like me who aren't bothered by it and who will hit the highest tip percentage anyway and just move on with our days. But I know I'm in the minority on that. Um, 
So it's really figuring out how, like knowing your crowd, how are they going to view you if you have this as an option? How much control do you have over your employees and how they treat it and how they treat their consumers? I really think that if you're if you're treating your employees well and you're paying them, you know, well enough, whatever that is, then they're not going to be nasty or rude or whatever to their employees or to their consumers about it. They're not going to say, you know, the whole, this is where you tip me thing that we all know some of them do. That's a great point though, too, which is you should train your employees um, about what you, cause, cause if you are one of those restaurants that is a counter service, but you open, uh, you, you leave the tipping option available, you need to train your employees on how to handle that because they are going to encounter situations where somebody's mad about tipping or, or something. Right. And, and, and again, to provide an experience to the customer that doesn't make them feel uncomfortable, the employee can, can help with that, but you need to tell them how to do that. That can't be up to them because that's not, that's not fair to them. Well, there is a, so in New York city, there is a robot barista, no humans, and they ask for a tip when you use it. I'm sure that outrages you, Sam. Well, yeah. Well, so I think I told the story a couple maybe months ago by now. But when I was flying through Newark Airport and I did a self-service thing and it asked for a tip. And I was outraged because I'm like, who am I tipping? Like, who does a tip go to? And when I'm already being charged out the wazoo at the Newark Airport on some snacks for my kids, I am I especially am not like, uh, no, I'm not giving you a little extra because, by the way, I facilitated this whole thing, right? Um, and we haven't even gotten into the tip credit. I mean, that's a whole part of this too, right? Uh, I, I, again, I 100% understand where tipping is actually good for your employees most of the time, right? Like tip sharing, tip pooling. Um, you know, I know some waiters and waitresses and why a lot, most, almost all the restaurant industry is against the elimination of the tip credit is because you actually do get paid pretty well if you allow for tipping and there's tip pooling and, you know, like you can get significantly higher than minimum wage with the help of tipping. But that is in the case of especially full service restaurants that are providing great service, a great experience. Um, there has to be experience attached to tipping, in my opinion. Uh, I, I don't want to, I don't want anybody to think I'm downplaying, you know, the importance of making that burger at the QSR, pulling the lever to dispense the coffee. Like there's, there is, uh, that is value too. But if, if you're in that environment, you should be, fair, be paid fairly by your employer for that. If you are leveraging your personal skill set and personality to provide a great experience through service to a guest, you deserve to be tipped for that. And yes, you should also be paid fairly, but um, but I think that's that's an instance where you went above and beyond, and therefore you could be tipped for that. Well, so the largest company that has tipping is Starbucks. And Starbucks rolled it out about a year ago to um, almost all of its stores. The unionized stores do not have tipping. Um, and so I think that that's super interesting that a big brand like Starbucks, the employees wanted tipping. Like that was something the employees wanted. And I don't know how it's going. I don't know what the public perception is of it. I haven't really seen anything written up. I don't know if they're getting tipped, if they're not. But um, I think that's interesting. That that's the biggest company to come out with tipping. And, you know, Starbucks is having an image problem right now, though their sales are the highest they've ever been. 
Um, the image we were talking about that the image of tipping is that you're not paying your workers enough and they've had all these union struggles. And I think that it's not a good look for them, but their employees wanted it. And so they rolled it out. And I mean, I guess we'll see how it goes in the long run. Yeah, I um, look. If you leave, I think a lot the the um, counter argument to this from the restaurant's behalf will say they will say we're just leaving it as an option, um, and there will be people who choose to tip on a counter service experience, and you can do both: pay your employees well, a fair wage, and leave tipping open to invite your customer into supporting them even more, and that's great. I that you know that, I don't I don't think that's bad, but I again I think we have to figure out the um presentation of it right it's these experiences where you know you're in front of the employee you're deciding whether to tip it's the it's it's putting the customer in this position of feeling like a piece of crap <laughs> like that you don't ever want them to feel like a piece of crap this is where i think a tip jar old fashioned tip jar yes i don't use cash anymore so it's tricky but like the beauty of the tip jar is it's sitting there now some people will tip as a grand gesture of look how saintly I am by dropping my extra coins in this tip jar, right? But like, that's a good way for it to just be there. You know, it's there. You drop in your extra change when you've got it, or you're feeling generous that day. You drop in a, a dollar bill or a five dollar bill or whatever. But I think it's when you're it's it's forcing you if when it's part of the actual transaction of you know sign my name, no receipt, oh and tip. That's when it becomes like you're saddling the customer with that decision every single time. Whereas, hey, this is here and you can participate if you choose to, but you don't have to. That's the part of it I think we have to really figure out. Okay. And I think we have to move on from this because I can't we, hear yeah. the Sam rant. I just We've, can't. I, I have, I've had a lot of coffee today. So um, <laughs> I, I'm, on a four, I'm on a four cups today. Three is my average. And once I get to that fourth, you don't know what's going to happen. I'm unpredictable. Well, let's talk about Gen Z, everybody's favorite topic. You know, we talk about Gen Z a lot, but... They love boneless they are, chicken. They love boneless chicken. I, I know you can't figure out why, Sam, but they love boneless chicken. And chicken sandwiches happen to be boneless chicken. And so there's this new version of the chicken sandwich wars that we have so often covered and talk about. And now they're coming back again because Gen Z loves flavor. They love sauces and they love texture. And so we're filming Menu Tracker today. And in the past month, spicy chicken from Shake Shack, Wingstop, KFC, and Popeyes have all come out. And so, I mean, that's a lot of people who are rolling out specifically spicy chicken. And it's a weird time of year to roll out spicy chicken because I feel like I associate it more with the summer and not the winter. But um that's just, that's my personal. I see your faces, but I associate it with the summer. I have spicy food summer. But um, spicy warms you up in the winter. It warms up your mouth, not your face. Good one. <laughs> I wasn't trying. Was that a burn? I think it was yeah, just it, some words strung together it was just with some words. Sam. Warms up your mom. Uh, so. So Gen Z and their boneless chicken loves, they love, we saw the sauce wars earlier this summer. Now we're seeing the spice wars, just lots of wars going on specifically in food. That's all we're talking about. Um, but there, there's a lot that's been added to this chicken sandwich wars that started in 2019 and they keep growing and they keep building and we're seeing more and more iterations of them and they're popular. So, I mean, what do you guys think about this new iteration of the chicken sandwich wars? I think it's delicious. 
Yeah, there we go. End of yeah, story. I think that uh, somebody figured out uh, what tastes good, and now they're all making it, and that's good for me. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's it's the chicken sandwich evolution is so funny to me because, you know, trends are very normal. You know, somebody starts using some random ingredient, and next thing you know, you feel like you're seeing it everywhere. But the fact that the chicken sandwiches have evolved at every what feels like every quick service chain for the past four years now in similar manners, you know, everyone's got a chicken sandwich and now everybody's putting some kind of funky sauce on it. And now everyone's making it spicy just feels so like, I don't, I I don't know how to describe it. Like there hasn't been as much, like every one is a little bit different, but the fact that every chain is following kind of the same trends and evolution and the fact that it's happened over the last four years specifically when so much has happened and so many curveballs have hit the industry specifically to see these, you know, the chefs and the kitchen innovation teams kind of come up with the same ideas at the same times and all of the sandwiches kind of change in different but extremely similar ways uh, is amusing to me. But it's working. You know, these sandwiches are still selling. Popeye's is still selling chicken sandwiches like mad. Chick-fil-A, despite being the original quote unquote victim of this whole thing, has not suffered at all. Uh, and in fact, has evolved their own chicken sandwich for the first time, I think, ever in its history. Uh, it's spicy. Yeah, it's it's spicy. Uh, and some of them are made out of cauliflower. Like You just... Um, so it's working. I hope... Um, I, f- I do feel like I'm hearing less of the like competitive chatter, like the quote-unquote wars, except from our own team. Um, you know, at the beginning, it was Popeye saying, you know, we're going to beat Chick-fil-A at their own game. And then other brands saying we're better than Popeye's. Um, I feel like I'm hearing less of that from the companies themselves. And people are just really focused on creating really good chicken sandwiches. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, I think once upon a time you had. The burger chains, for example, threw out a chicken sandwich for those weirdos who were going to the burger chain uh, and didn't want a burger. You know, once upon a time, it was kind of like eliminating the veto vote. You had to have a chicken sandwich because there was somebody, mom, somebody want to eat healthy and have a, a chicken sandwich, right? Well, then chicken became the number one protein in America. People love chicken. Uh, people love fried chicken, especially. And, uh, so it, it became that it was no longer enough just to have a chicken sandwich. You had to have a chicken sandwich with flavor. And I think the first iteration of the chicken sandwich wars, uh, showed us that, uh, you know, you could go more than just, here's a fried chick piece of fried chicken on a bun with pickles that suddenly it was like, Oh, like you have to have a good chicken sandwich, you know, with good spices in the batter, a good uh, chicken piece of chicken, um, you know, a better bun, all these things. So now this is naturally going to the next level, which is there's a lot of competition out there. You have to differentiate differentiate your chicken product and how else to do that, but adding creative flavors, toppings, other ingredients, right? Um, Sauces, these kinds of things. And so I'm here for it as a big fan of chicken sandwiches. I think this is great because it's suddenly there's more discoverability. There's more adventure in a chicken sandwich, which again, once upon a time used to be, is it spicy or not spicy? Now, spicy, uh, you know, of course, spicy is still in, but it is what are the other flavors involved here? And it's really kind of quaint to think like when Popeye's came out with their chicken sandwich and Chick-fil-A had their thing, everybody was just like, here's a piece of chicken with pickles. Like, 
like that's tasty. Don't get me wrong, but there's so much you can do with chicken. And I'm glad to see that the restaurants are really coming around to that. And it's your guests will come along with you because America loves chicken and America loves chicken sandwiches. So um, you would do well. And by the way, also, of course, there's, you know, you you have the burger restaurants with a chicken sandwich and you have chicken sandwich restaurants Uh, specifically to those of you burger uh, restaurants out there. Look at your existing SKUs and think about how you can use those on a chicken sandwich because that you already have it right there in front of you. Like get crazy, go, you know, try some new things on your chicken sandwich. The chicken sandwich restaurants already are, you know, having to do that. Cause you have to have a variety of menu options. Um, but yes, I, I think, um, I think this is great for the industry to have some variety with chicken because it can be seen as a boring protein, but it does not have to be. Well, and the flavors are more global now. So for instance, Shake Shack is using Szechuan. Wingstop is using maple sriracha. Uh, Popeye's is using Cajun tur- Cajun turkey and spicy truff. You know, we had that big truff uh, stage at one point. Everybody I'm sorry, truff. are we shortening truffle? No, that's the sauce. The sauce is called truff. Oh, it is. Oh, okay. It's a brand. It's a brand oh, okay. that you have clearly Mr. been. Mr. <laughs> I read all our stories. Doesn't know about truff. I just thought we were getting lazy and not saying truffle. They, they work with Taco Bell. Yeah. <gasps> I didn't know something about Taco Bell. Oh, Lord. But so these global flavors are also what Gen Z is wanting. They want, like, we think about the BTS meal from uh, McDonald's. They brought in one of their sauces from Korea to the U.S. that they only have there, and they used that sauce. And it was extremely popular. So I think we're also looking at these global flavors from Gen Z. I'd like to assert that millennials, too, love flavor, as (laughs) as do Gen X. And boomers, pretty sure. Just, but yes, people is, like flavor. It's crazy. It's wild. But yes, it's no. important to appeal to Gen Z. I, and that's you know that will be the message for the next ten years. We're doing this yeah. for Gen Z. But yes, yep. Flavor is uh, popular. What a great note to end on. Flavor is popular. There we I go. Mean, come on, come on. That's that's a great note to end on. So I'm going to throw it over to Brett, who interviewed Douglas Streitzel, CEO and founder of Picklemans, not Pickle. Belgioso Cheese is a family-owned and operated company specializing in artisan Italian cheesemaking. Using only natural ingredients and fresh, local Wisconsin milk, master cheesemakers handcraft a full line of exceptional cheeses, guided by a commitment to quality and a respect for tradition. Ask your distributor about Belgioso's award-winning fresh mozzarella, burrata, ricotta, mascarpone, American grana, and parmesan. At Belgioso, every cheese is a specialty. Douglas Stritzel, founder of Picklemans. And tell yeah. me what 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 is Picklemans for uh, our legions of uh, listeners who don't know what it is? Well, we call it a gourmet cafe because when we started out, we had coffee as well. So we 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 learned early that that didn't work for our model um, where we were located. So now it's more of a gourmet deli. Um, we have an artisan approach to food. I think uh, you know, kind of my past experience and seeing a lot of my, uh, a lot of people, uh, you know, and a lot of say the suggestions and the food standards, even, even in this country versus the European standards, you know, I, I think we, we, you have to almost acknowledge that something's wrong with some of the food that we eat. So, you know, I, I believe taking, uh, trying to take out all the preservatives, you know, staying away from some of the food colorings, um, you know, and then, then going with, uh, no antibiotic, uh, ever chicken and no antibiotic ever pork 
um, and then really making things from scratch. So, so we're more of an artisan uh, type of a concept. All of our dressings are made from scratch um, daily. Our, our cookies made from scratch daily. Our bread, uh, the bread that we that uh, that I, I actually designed the bread about seven and a half years ago. But the bread has seven ingredients, so it's it's uh, as clean as it gets. It's par baked um, in in a facility uh, companion bakery in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, then it's delivered delivered through our distribution chain to the to the uh, restaurant. So only, only we're the only ones that can have the recipe because I own it. Um, we have a tomato basil soup. Uh, it's a bisque tomato basil bisque soup. That's uh, it's. Um, it's our recipe. It's, it's unique to us. Uh, you know, in, in the manufacturing of food, you have to really, especially when you're making soups and sauces and things of that nature, and even in the, even the bread, but in the soups case, I gave the, you give, you give them the recipe and then you get back, you know, what you, they make it. Um, what I found is it's really important to actually you know, go in and meet the team that's making it and then try to help, try to coach them into hitting the flavor profiles you're looking for. So like in, in, in the tomato bisque case, uh, you know, we have caramelized onions um, that I, I like. The caramelization has to be to a certain point. And this particular manufacturing plant, they actually started with the onions and the caramel or the, uh, the oil and the onions were cold together. That's how they started it. So most people know that you, that you wouldn't soak your onions in oil. However, sometimes in the manufacturing plant, you have to go in and you have to take the time to go look and, and pay attention to what's going on. So, you know, with the tomato bisque, it's uh, the caramelized onions. And then that particular soup, we, we, lay, we, we layer in, um, we layer in uh, basil. So... And, and all the grease are really layered in, but there's basil that's loaded towards the front end of it. And then at the very end, we put basil on top of that. That way, the caramelized onions, the, the basil flavor the, with, the, with the tomato, um, you know, and, and just the right spices, it's, it like takes you back to what grandma made, you know, when before there was a lot of processed foods. And you've been doing this for a while. Pickle Man's is almost 20 years old, right? You founded in 2005? I found in 2005, so yeah, we're, we're getting close to 20 years. I've been in the food business for uh, uh, over about 30 years and, and uh, ran, ran various other chains um, as the chief operating officer. So I got a lot of experience uh, with that and, and grew a couple brands uh, significantly. But, uh, you know, I decided that, that you know, really when you, when, you, when you go out to eat or you go to kind of a – I love sandwich. I really love food. Um, but when you would go out to eat and, and most of the restaurants, you know, unless you got or most of the chains, unless you really got the one or two, you know, preferred things, you know, really it was just kind of mediocre and sometimes not even very good at all. So um, I, what I set out to do really with this brand was to, you know, make sure that whatever we sell passes through my palate. And, uh, you know, so, so, you know, the original menu had 12 sandwiches and I designed those in my kitchen, um, you know, and you know, a lot of it's just basic common sense, really, from knowledge from the industry. Everybody knows that if you have a sandwich shop, you have to sell a turkey sandwich. So, you know, there, there's there's basic blocking and tackling, I guess, that goes on. But, you know, with with our brand, we uh, we added a tavern, thin tavern style crust that we can cook, uh, you know, 
really pretty fast. I mean, the cook time, so less than three minutes. So that's um, so it's all, pizza, right? Pardon me, that's, that's our pizza, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 and the, the sandwiches go through, uh, go through, you know, about a minute, little, a little longer, a minute and a half. You know, they're going through at a very high temperature, and, and uh, it gets them just about toasted, right? Um, and then, you know, but the, the, the remarkable thing about it is, you know, it's the, really the throughput. Um, you know, some places you'll go and you'll, you'll order and you'll know it's just going to be forever. With, with, with Pickleman's, you know, we really, we really I, I set it up so it would have an assembly line fashion, you know, so we can, we can you know, finish as many as 10 to tw- uh, a sandwich every 10 to 12 seconds off the line. So, and then the pizza goes through another oven and, and uh, that's not on the sandwich line. So, so that, that goes through the, you know, ovens that are stacked, that goes to another area where another employee can be, you know, working on cutting up the packaging pizza. Um, and then we have a hot table and a salad table. So there's, there's a number of different flows to the, uh, to the register and, and uh, you know, it's been a pretty, pretty successful combination. In fact, I did it really, um, I did it, you know, so, you know, a, a young couple could, you know, find, find their dream and own their own business by, by buying my franchise and opening up three to five stores. And, you know, now they can be the soccer coach, the volleyball coach, you know, when they want to take the kids to, to Hawaii or something, they don't have to ask, they don't have, you know, someone that they have to ask and, uh, you know, they're able to go on a two week vacation. Wait, Um, how so? Sorry, how can they go on a two-week vacation if it's just them running the franchise? Well, when you when you when you scale it to three to five stores, you know, then then you're in a comfortable enough position where you have, you know, you'll have an accountant, you know, a bookkeeper, and you'll have a a, a district manager, or depending, you might call him your operations leader or, or his, or even an operating partner, somebody that you give, you know, part a percentage of the business to that they'll take care of it for you. So, you know. That way, mom can have her same career, and and it's it's really a model. I think that you know it's really not all that unique. It, what's unique about it is it's cleaner food. It's it's a cleaner food, fast, um, that tastes good. Uh, and you're up to twenty nine locations now. Is that right? Yes, we have twenty nine locations, and we're we're going to open one in January in Dallas. We've got some uh, area developments happening in Dallas as well as Indianapolis. And why is it called Pickle Man's? You know, um, I guess it's kind of a funny story. And, and, and in some cases, I've been, uh, I, you know, people, people have not wanted me to, um, I don't know. It's an awkward story, I guess. Is it? What, you know, when you're developing a concept, one of the most important things is have, have a name that's brandable. Um, so we, I had just gone through, you know, a whole litany of, of lists and nothing just felt right. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, I, we were going to uh, Detroit, my wife and I and, and my son, and we were going to visit a friend, um, a friend of ours. They had two girls, six and four and six. So uh, Jack's diaper was wet. He was a year and a half old. And the, the one little girl goes, look, mommy, look, Jack has a pickle. You know, so we were kind of in stitches about it. Um, well, we were, we were all in stitches about it, actually. So probably an hour, hour and a half later, you know, I, I, I just I had this vision of the logo, this, this big, great big uh, kosher dill logo, you know, because, you know, a good deli in New York's got a great big kosher dill. They got pickles, mm-hmm. you know, so 
I'm going to make, I'm going to make, I'm going to make it about the pickle. And, uh, and then from there I go, okay, I got Picklemans. So it's Picklemans. And, uh, you know, and then I had an envision of, of my mascot's name's Big Dill. He's, uh, he's a six foot, uh, walking pickle. Um, in each of the franchisees, you know, they, they can, uh, not all of them have, have their own suits, but that most of them have used Big Dill in, in a promotion or two. And, He'll go to birthday parties. Some of the franchisees have dressed him up as Santa Claus, uh, the Easter Bunny, um, you know, you name it. And and, the, and he goes to the kids' birthday parties. And, you know, he brings levity. And, and you know, and especially at times like this, I mean, we just went through a horrendous, the horrendous pandemic. You know, no matter what way you fall or how you think of that, you know, it's, but it's been pretty dang stressful for everyone. So, um, you know, and, 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 we found that, uh, you know, you know, recently or, or in the last few years, um, you know, he's brought a lot, a lot of levity to, uh, you know, to, to different birthday parties, just kind of, you know, it, it's fun, you know, it's fun and it tastes good. And moms don't mind feeding their, feeding their kids the food. So it, it, it makes it really a healthy place. And, and do you operate any restaurants or is it all franchised? Um, you know, I operated the first two franchises. Uh, that's a long story or a short story. I'm, I'll make it short. So I, I operated two, the first two stores just to kind of prove the concept. And then, um, then really my goal was to, was to teach, teach people how to be successful. I read a book a long time ago called Steve, it was Stephen Covey's uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He ran a whole series. I'm mm-hmm. sure you've heard of that. But, uh, you know, it, the premise was, you know, you could give a man a fish. And, and feed them for a day, but, but you give them, you teach them how to fish, you feed them for a lifetime. So I took that to heart and that's probably, that's why I, that's kind of what drives me right now is, is, is just teaching them how to be successful and, and, you know, be able to have that dream. And how did you learn to be successful? As I understand it, you worked in operations at Jimmy John's for a while, right? Yeah, I did. Um, I, I started at Jimmy John's in uh, 1992, right at the end of 1992. I went through a training program and and uh, and then, you know, I, I really I I'd visited the restaurants a few times in, in a couple of different college towns. There weren't that many of them. I think there were 10 at this at that point. Um, and, and you go in and they'd run out of bread and they just they had things that you know, and, and I'm, I'm, I've always been somebody that's been industrious and, and, uh, you know, I, I've been <clears throat> making money since I was a kid and, um, f- from various things. I got, I guess, uh, picking up apples at a penny a pop when I was a young kid, so I could eat, eat an ice cream cone was basically how I learned the, the, how that whole thing works. So I've worked ever since. And, uh, you know, my, my, I, I just, I looked at it. I played college sports. I played a few different sports. I was an athlete and I knew, but I knew a lot about, you know, building teams. And uh, what I did know is, is the industry itself, you know, they treat, they didn't treat people all that well, especially the kids that were working in the restaurants. You know, you, you get yelled at and screamed at when you're working in these restaurants. And, and Bart, a lot of it might've been, you know, that the, the people were, you know, the management, the owner was under a lot of stress. He just did not, he or she maybe just didn't know how to deal with it. Um, but nonetheless, they'd lash out. There wasn't a lot of culture back then. And, and uh, I believe that I could um, turn the little sandwich shop shops around one by one and, and run the company. And in fact, that's what I ended up doing in about two years. I ran the whole, I ran the whole, all the corporate company. 
I doubled their, their, their sales volume in about three years. And uh, they started selling franchises and then I ran the franchise side of it and helped out some franchises and, and uh, even got even walked away with a really nice gift from one of the franchisees. Uh, then I went on a custard concept. Uh, I guess Jimmy and I, we, we knocked heads a little bit and I'd say I have a, you know, we have a little bit different mindset and, and uh, things of that nature to, to, to keep it, to keep it good. Um, then I went off to, uh, you know, learn some experience. You know, I, I got a job with a place called Ritter's frozen custard. Um, Ritter's was uh, a 50 store custard chain and in based out of Indianapolis, moved over there, ran that company for about a year and a half. And then, uh, then, then kind of, uh, at that point I, I, I got to see a system that they didn't have any food cost controls. They didn't have any labor cost controls and in in the, the the investment was you know they wanted to have a two uh, a two acre lot with a round building with a blue roof <laughs> that's hard to sell if you go outside of indiana and you don't know the brand so you know one of my recommendations was was you know john we, to the to mr ritter uh i said you know we, we're going to need to look at inline spaces and maybe in caps and in and you know and he just refused to do it and, you know, at that time, the franchisees were struggling. So, um, and I, I put together, I came in and in three months, we had a three or four months, we ended up having a conference with the franchisees where I rolled out my food cost program and my labor matrix and, and labor scheduling program and <clears throat> try to get them on straight and narrow. But, you know, when, with, with, without the ownership uh, willing to, you know, really step back and look at the big picture and, and realize that, to grow the brand. Well, A and A, we have to have, you know, adequate cost controls and stuff, you know, should have been in place years ago. Um, you know, these people invested, you know, back then, I, I think it was a million and a half, two million dollars. And that's, that's, it's a big number. So. Um, for, a, for a frozen custard stand. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it was that's really nice. big numbers. So I guess you um, need to buy two acres of land that uh, makes it harder. Some of them had, you know, probably good enough numbers, but, but you saturated that a little bit and then you have the all, all overhead. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's, it was, uh, you know, Andy, Andy's custard, I'll give a shout out to them. They, they do it right. I, I know, uh, and I know some people within that organization, so they, they, they have a pretty good package, but, um, the blue roof and everything, I, I, it was a, so nonetheless, so I, I decided that, uh, you know, that wasn't going to be a good, good, good place because the ownership didn't, uh, you know, didn't have the willingness to, to make some concessions or, or at least pivot a little bit from the model. Or, or the, the uh, basic accounting of like food and labor cost, which is kind of crucial. Crucial. You know, I've never hired a general manager and said, hey, you, you get to be the general manager. You don't have to take inventory. Right. I've never even heard that said. No, that I mean, it, it's, it, and you know, ironically within my system, I mean, we, we have some opportunities, but the franchisees, uh, you know, I, I, it's, it's been, I've tried to get them to take their inventories for, for years and years. And, and uh, I guess on one hand, it's a blessing because they haven't felt like they really needed to, but I keep trying to tell them they, they're leaving a lot on the table. And, and, uh, but now back to the ownership. So I, I'm buying one of the franchises back in O'Fallon, Missouri. Um, we're going to uh, be able to benchmark some of the numbers and, and certainly we're going to take inventory every week, if not every day, you know, and, and we're going to, 
you know, try to, again, prove the concept, prove the food cost numbers. And, and uh, although they, they all have a theoretical food cost that they can run, the computer tells them. So uh, there, it's, the, it's the variance in this industry that you have to know how to manage. Totally. And, and set, and yeah, set goals. The, yeah, theoretical food cost is nice, but you have to know actually what your numbers are. Yeah, not so. wait until the end of the month. Right. No, you got to know. And so you are now entering back into actual operations by buying a franchise and then then you're gonna have your own restaurant again yeah i i am i own half one up, up in omaha and part of one you know a little percentage one uh in lincoln just just back then to help out but uh yeah now now this is my full one and, and we're gonna build a few corporate stores and and put that model together and and then uh and i think that'll help uh sell the franchises um because right now it's it's uh you know i have to have numbers that i can report you know, that, that are, that are corporately run. And, and uh, so that, that's where we're at. We got a great model. Our average unit volume is pretty good. Do you want to tell us what your average unit volume is? Well, I, th- I, th- I, you, do you tell me what, what I don't, if one point, you got to tell me if I'm at 1.4432. I mean, I don't know what your average unit volume is, but that sounds pretty good. Yeah. One, 1.44 million um, and, some, and some change. Um, so that, that's, that's the number. That's our average unit volume for all the stores that were open for a full calendar year. Um, year over year, that they were up uh, 14, I think, 0.57%, which is pretty good growth. And that, that was how we finished 2020. Um, 2000 in, in uh, our, yeah, two, our, I'm sorry, 22, 2022. 2023, you know, we're, we're, we seem to be pretty, doing pretty good. I don't think the growth that much growth is there, but uh, we uh, I know that we're going going in the right direction, and we've got some big things on the horizon. We just rolled out a whole new menu, um, little segment uh, set uh, with macaroni and cheese bowls. It's and so our macaroni and cheese is a clean product made by a, a good solid Midwestern company, Blount Foods. Um, there uh, they've done the bread companies and others. So it's really, it's a good product. So it comes down to we can, how we can execute it. And then we were, we're putting uh, no antibiotic ever chicken on top of that and uh, no antibiotic ever pork with a few different combinations um, that I think of chicken bacon ranch is, is one of them as an example. So I, there's, there's, so, you know, in making the dressings in house, I get to really highlight my flavors and uh, you know, kind of do uh have a unique twist on things that, that you can't get at most of the other sub shops or sandwich sandwich stores or QSR restaurants for that matter. So your concept is limited service, quick service, as you just said. Um, and the menu sounds pretty complex. You've got sandwiches, you've got pizza, you have tomato bisque that you're uh, apparently very proud of. You're introducing new uh, mac and cheese bowls. Is there anything up? Salads? You got salads, right? We've got salads, yeah. yeah. So th- th- those are the broadliners. Uh, so mac and cheese bowls. I mean, uh, we just rolled the mac and cheese out, but who doesn't like mac and cheese? So the kids love love it. Um, so the mac and cheese with toasted sandwiches, uh, you know, thin crust pizza, um, soup, the soup we've had since day one, uh, and salads. We started off just a Caesar salad. Now we've got uh, seven of them. So we have a fairly robust menu, but you know what we do when we bring in a, in a, in a product is 
you know, usually that, that product is represented uh, on, the, on a pizza, on a sandwich, and in a salad. So it, it, it goes across all of the things. So we have, we have less than 200 SKUs. I think, I think at one point it was 150-something, but I, I don't want to speak out of turn. I would just say that we have less than 200, uh, which and, and, and a really robust menu that I think, you know, I'm trying to appeal to offices of like 12, and in 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 families that might have um, you know people who like to eat a lot of different things, so we have good healthy options, and we have things that if you want to be naughty, you can, and it's going to taste good. So but they're all it's. I was going to. Well, what are your most popular menu items? Um, turkey bacon. Our, our Italian club actually is is usually, um, in some cases, that's the first one, uh, but in, in it's usually in the top three, just about everywhere. So that's just uh, uh, it's a, it's a solid sandwich with a nice flavor profile, and you know it's about balance. Um, and turkey bacon, uh, we have a chipotle chicken sandwich. For a long time, our Asiago chicken. We were doing an Asiago chicken in 2005. I think we were the first ones to start doing it. Like not even the big 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 people were doing it. I I thought uh, or the bigger brands. I, I had one store, you know, so. Basically, I went to the grocery stores and said, what do I like? And, and that time, it was uh, there was an Asiago, Brianna's Asiago Caesar dressing, and I got that, and I put that on a sandwich. I said, this is going to be good. And and then, uh, so I called them. I said, can I get this in the case? And they said, sure. So um, so I, I used that for, oh, I don't know, two, five years, and then they, then they quit doing the, doing the uh, food service version of it. Um, so I made my own recipe. So it sounds like your approach to menu development is sort of similar to Cheesecake Factories in which, you know, their Ted guy, Dave Overton, tasted. He says, yeah, good. Put it on the menu. Is, do you, is that your approach, too, or do you have a more? Uh, well, it's not been by committee. Sorry? <laughs> it's not been by committee. But, but you know, gen- generally speaking, you know, I, I'll, I play with it, toy with it, and then, uh, you know, and then say, what do you think? And I'll sample guests and, and my employees, um, you so know, they, and, and managers. You know, and we 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 play with the food a little bit here and there. But you you're you're not going out and vetting the idea to a lot of people, and then hiring a uh, market research firm to justify no. stuff. No, no I pick up a thing I, and you I, listen. It's got to pass my palate, and and I'll tell you. Whatever the trend is and whatever somebody else does is about the last thing I do. I don't, I don't, I'm not, I don't, it, it's, you can't follow, you have to lead. And you got to lead in what, you got to lead in a direction that your values take you. So, you know, even, even, the, even the best sandwich, you know, chicken, fried chicken sandwich in the business has got like 40 extra ingredients that you shouldn't be putting in your body. So we're going to be responsible with our brand and, 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 you know, and I and I think that we we gain. I know that we gain the confidence of of you know most of our most of our um, you know families and and customers that come in. There, a lot of them are really just fans. Not only customers, they're fans of the brand because they they can feel it. Do you have a fried chicken sandwich? No. You have fryers? It doesn't sound like you. No fry. No no fryers. No fryers, and and so so we're not ever going to have a fried chicken sandwich. No matter how many they sell, (laughs) 
we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna do uh, do what we do. I mean, we have we have uh, no antibiotic ever chicken that makes some really great chicken sandwiches, and it's good on the pizza. Um, so we have a buffalo chicken pizza, so, and it's no antibiotic ever. So, you know, it, the 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 general populace is becoming more aware of the health concerns in the food system. Um, and, and I believe that that, that that percentage of, 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 you know, consumer out there is growing and growing every year. So, you know, we're, we're just here waiting, you know, that's, so we're, that's, that's, those are the people that we focus on. So, and anyway, we have something actually fun coming out. I was just at a, at a supplier show, actually, I'll share with you. Um, so we're testing a vegan, so that's gluten-free, uh, dairy-free, vegan uh, crust for pizza. Um, so that's exciting. And then we have a cheese, uh, cheese that we're testing with it. That's also vegan. So, you know, that's, that's a, um, big, you know, growing population that, that, uh, that, that really, that are, that are all intermixed in those little offices of, of 10 to 12 people, I promise you. So when you offer something like that and you get and you, so you get, you get them something that they really like, they're coming more often. You and have, every, and everybody's getting healthier. Yes, well, a lot of people do. Do have a lot of uh, requests for vegan, gluten free, no antibiotic stuff, or I mean, is that coming from your customers, or is that coming from you, or both? You know, it, it's uh, it's it's important to twenty to thirty percent of the, the of the populace basically is in the polls. So, you know, th- those are people that I, that I think are underserved. So that's why we're going towards that way. And it's also, you know, they, they, they in a lot of cases have a healthier lifestyle to some degree. Now you can have a vegan product and eat it and enjoy it and not be vegan wholly. You know, if, if you can have a balance in your life where you might eat a few things here, yet, yet you might have a piece of fish or you might have a different protein that you don't want to give up, you know, but really it's, it's, Getting getting a whole round, you know, kind of a, you know, having having some variety in your diet, I think, is healthy for you. And and is that you you said about thirty percent of people in general are interested in that? Is that something that your customers also express, or uh, is it more that that's not, what them? Which you not, know, not all, not not all of them. Not all of them, you know, some of them do, you know, some of them really appreciate that we have cleaner food and some of them, you know, love, love the products that, uh, that they're able to come and eat and they feel good about it. Um, there's a lot of moms, especially that are akin to, you know, all, all the, the things, you know, they're, they're raising their children and they're very protective of, of those kiddos. And, and, uh, so they, they do their research and they're on the social media and, you know, they're, they're, they're becoming more, they're being more and more empowered with knowledge. And, and, uh, and it's because of that moms want, you know, they, they don't want their kid drinking a Coke, you know, when they're four, you know, they'd rather, if they're going to have something, they'd rather have, have an option where the, you know, we have a non-GMO lemonade, um, a non-GMO strawberry lemonade. So with pure cane sugars, and there's, there's three things on it. That's it. It's just a very, very clean label. Straightforward, I assume. Pardon me? Sugar, water, and lemons, I assume, are the three things in your lemonade. Yeah. Yeah. It's pure cane sugar, water, and lemons. I mean, and they're non-GMO lemons. 
Well, yeah, I don't so think there's if, any GMO lemons. Pardon? Either way, I don't think there are any GMO lemons. But regardless, I don't know if there. Are, I don't know if there are or not actually. So I, I know that 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 the whole industry is very confusing, and you know they 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 call things you know natural. They call things no antibiotics, and then there's no antibiotics ever. And, and all, a lot of it's marketing, but, you know, I will say that the no antibiotic ever means, uh, you know, it, it's weight. And, and, you know, those are typically, the, those are the animals that are the healthiest, you know, at slaughter because they haven't, uh, they haven't, they haven't needed antibiotics or they'd be dead. So. Well, usually what happens is they're treated with antibiotics and then they're sold through a different channel. Right. That, yes, that's what happens. So what about what's your average per person check? Um, we're we're north of twenty. I, I don't I don't have have that uh, have that exactly, but it's it's in, in twenty bucks, twenty ish. Eight, yeah. Their money at, at um, yeah. And have you gotten any boost at all from the popularity of pickleball? Seems like a random question, but I would think people would kind of, I you know, people are pro pickle these days. Well, you know, pickles are fun. There's, there's, uh, it's, it's kind of a, you know, you, you get to have a lot of fun with marketing. And I think the pickle, uh, the pickleball is, is certainly a sport that is really catching fire. Um, and we have some of the people on our team play it. And, and uh, you know, we have, I, we probably have some franchisees out there that sponsor, or I know that we're in, we've been approached, but I'm not sure who's advertising what specifically. But I could be. Yeah, it seems like a logical fit for Pickle Man's to yeah. Um And so you're opening your 30th restaurant soon. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and right now you're in, in the Midwest. Are you planning on staying in the Midwest or expanding beyond there? Depends. Yeah, on right now we're in six Midwestern states. Uh, we're going to, we're opening our 30th store in Dallas. Uh, we have a five store development in Dallas. Um, we have, uh, Two more stores that are going to be developed in, in, in Oklahoma City. And then there's two more that are going in northwest Arkansas. Those are area developments. And then, then there's a four-store development in Indianapolis, Indiana. And uh, and I know that we have some – our existing franchisees are uh, looking at buying uh, – looking at opening up a few more too. So we've got a few uh, a few out there for franchisees that already have, you know, north of five, six units. They're, they're, they're getting ready to buy, buy another set, set in, in their territories and, and maybe even in a new territory in one case. So we have a lot of internal growth, which I think is a great sign. So you are busting out of the Midwest, opening in Dallas. So that's... Yeah, that'll be the seventh state. Texas will make it the seventh state. And, um, you know, we're probably going to stay um, throughout the Midwest, um, uh, probably in between the Rockies and the Appalachian Mountains, I guess, you know, somewhere there, they kind of in the middle uh, for, for probably the next year and a half, two years. And then assuming we get some traction and, and, uh, and sell some franchises, I think we could look to go to the East Coast. Uh, we'd go to the East Coast if we had the right person, you know, the right, right, um, you know, the right franchisor. You know, if one of a big group came along and they wanted to, do a rather large development. We could. It's all about. It's all about being able to supply, support the supply chain, and you can't put a single store in, in uh, you know, Orlando, Florida, and, and get food to it at a at a fair price. 
especially food that's that's approved for our system. So it makes it makes it more difficult. But once you get into you know a large development, you can you can put the house there, and uh, with anticipation, you're going to have five to seven stores in three three years or so. And is that what you're looking for in a franchisee? Someone who wants to open at least three restaurants? Yeah, I, I think uh, yeah, I think that's that's what we're looking for. Any any anybody that really wants to do. Um, you know, make, make it, a, make it a career, make it a business and, and, uh, you know, kind of run the model. So we're looking th- three to five stores or, you know, with the right, co- I mean, there's a lot of operators out there that, that, you know, when they do this, they want 20 stores and they want a couple different markets. So at some point, I think that, uh, those operators will see the value and the throughput potential because really the throughput potential is first the quality of product, but the throughput potential is really the ceiling of success you're able to have when you open up a store. And, and uh, I think that they'll see that, that our throughput potential gives them the opportunity to, to do quite a high volume, um, which, which makes it a lot of sense, especially if they put in an area where they might know that's, uh, that has that kind of traffic. Sure. And are you looking for uh, experienced operators only, or can newbies also get in touch with you? Um, you know, we, we really like to see, obviously see experienced people. Cause I think they're the ones that are going to see the value in the brand. Um, you know, that's, with that being said, you know, there are people with the right, you know, kind of the right, uh, you know, kind of attitude approach to business. You know, if they have, if, if somebody has, you know, a, a level of success in, in, you know, some other, some other area or field and, and they've, kind of been in the, at the top of their, at the top of the echelon or, you know, like the top 10 of their segment or, you know, some, something where they have, where they have some, uh, some, some bit of excellence in their backgrounds, you know, something we look for somebody that wouldn't necessarily have food experience. Gotcha. Yeah. I just thought I'd get that out there. So in case people listening to this want to get in touch and start franchising a pickle man's, they, uh, they know how to do it. They um, do pickle, pickleman's franchising.com. There you go. Picklemansfranchising.com. Picklemans Franchising, one word. Right? One word. Yep. Picklemansfranchising.com. Gotcha. One word. Good to know. And I'm glad you, you did that plug. And Douglas Stritzo, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Uh, good luck in your expansion and congratulations on your soon to open 30th location. All right. Well, let me know if you ever want to come talk about the small stuff again. I'd love, I'd love to chat with you. Likewise. Take care. Thank, thank you.